Um, so that's my family, and that's that's me, and um, you know, we'll probably hopefully get a chance to chat a little bit more, get to know one another a little better. Um, I did want to use this time though, just kind of like go straight to this, because you really came for this, right? You came for the Word of God, right? Uh, that's why you're not, you know, studying the library. You're here, so. I want to just go straight into this passage and unpack what's here for us tonight and uh, see what God has to, to tell us. So let's get to know each other a little bit better. Let's go to the Word of God now. Let's go to um, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, and that, that, I think it's in your little bulletin as well. So let me go ahead and just read this for us real quick. This is Mark chapter 2, for those of you who are looking in your Bibles, Mark chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old. And a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let me pray real quick before we dive into the word. Father God, thank you for your word. I thank you for this space to hear it and share it. I pray, God, you would give us uh, wisdom so that we would hear it from our hearts. And I do pray it will effect real change in the way we live as well. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Um, so some of you may have heard of this TV show um, called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo on Netflix. Um, I noticed a lot of our church members are getting into this. And I just wanted to catch a few episodes, kind of learn, learn the culture of it. You know, what is the hype? Um, and then I watched a few episodes and I really started to kind of get into it. And I after a few episodes, I started noticing this pattern emerging uh, in this show. Every episode usually goes something like this, right? First, Marie Kondo, he ent she enters this typical American home. And pretty soon, she's going to begin to call on the residents to th start throwing out um, not only the, the, the bad stuff, like the junk, right? But a ton of the good stuff, perfectly usable, and sometimes people treasure, right? Throw that out, too. Right. And that's the part where a lot of people have trouble with, um, where Marie limits them to a handful of things that spark joy, right? spark joy. Um, but when they go through that struggle and they give it a try and they start feeling this you know, uh, new excitement in simplifying their lives, uh, what they end up with is not just a tidier home at the end of the day, they acquire this whole new outlook on life. Um, their values are changed, they have different priorities now, they live this new way of life now, it, they're different people. That's the pattern, right? From throwing this stuff out, not only the bad, but also some of the good, and the discovery of just what really sparks joy for them. And then finally, this renewal, this change that they, they go through. Okay? And all of this happened because they invited this petite Japanese lady into their lives, right? That's all it took. They invited her into their lives. Now, I think we see a similar pattern in our passage today when it comes to following the calling of Christ and, and becoming a disciple of Christ. There's a similar pattern of this throwing out. 
of not only the bad stuff in your life, but also a lot of the good. And I think that throwing out is really what the Bible means by repentance. And then there's this rejoicing, this spark of joy in your life. And then this, and finally, this change and renewal. Okay. So that's what I want to unpack for you today. You know, for those of you who are note takers, right, these three points. Um, how the calling of Christ invites us to repent, to rejoice, and to be renewed. How the calling of Christ invites us to, to repent, to rejoice, and to be renewed. These three. So let me address these one at a time. All right, here we go. First, the calling of Christ is for us to repent in this way. To repent not only of the bad, the junky stuff, but also of the good. What do I mean by that? How does Mark point us to that in this passage? Here's how Mark, I think, gets us going. He says this in verse 18. Take a look at verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Okay, and stop right there, because Mark, he tends to pack a lot of things in like one verse. When it says they were fasting, that means not just fasting right then and there, but fasting presently, progressively, regularly. This is, this is what they do. And in fact, during this time, the Pharisees were fasting about twice a week. And that was not something that was um, explicitly written in the Mosaic law. Now, God did command the Israelites to fast once a year on the day called the Day of Atonement. And it was meant to teach them humility, to encourage them, uh, you know, the, the true spirit of repentance and grieving over their sins and all that. And along with this sort of physical sense of deprivation and hunger and emptiness, they are to intensify, heighten their hunger for God. That was the point. To fill that sense of emptiness with God himself. But the Pharisees, uh, they took this law and they, they turned it into something entirely different than its original purpose. Uh, that's why they weren't content with fasting once a year. They basically said, once a year is just, it's just too weak. Okay? We're going to have to do this weekly and not just once a week, but twice a week. Okay? So they established this really extra biblical standard and they impose it on everyone in their community with their, you know, using their authority as religious leaders. And this, what, what, what it did for them is it separated the religious from the irreligious, the uh, devout from the non-devout and the holy from the unholy, the moral from the immoral and all that. Okay? Even though, right, the Bible really didn't prescribe any such thing, they wanted to establish this, establish this kind of made-up sort of point-based merit system to establish themselves. Now, I'm a pretty big movie fan, and I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Mean Girls. It's actually an excellent movie. I don't want to say that too loud, but it's, 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 there's no denying it. It's, it's just a great movie. Um, the, the protagonist in the movie is this immigrant from South Africa. Right? She was homeschooled in Africa, moves to America, joins this you know, American public high school for the very first time, and maybe that's why I empathize with this woman. I'm an immigrant as well. And on this high school campus, there's this group called the Plastics. Remember the Plastics? And there's, they're basically this very popular group of girls on campus that sort of function like kind of those aristocrats, right? They dress really fancy, wear a ton of makeup. And then within that group, there's this queen bee, right? There's a queen bee named Regina. And, and she's the leader. She's always followed around by her entourage. And she's... Right, so cool, they're all so cool, they're so awesome. The word they use is fetch, right? Everything they touch is so fetch, right? Um, and they invite Katie, the protagonist from South Africa, 
into their group, right? And they, 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 one day they bring Katie to Regina's home and they show her in Regina's room this very secretive book called what? The, the Burn Book, right? The Burn Book. It's basically a scrapbook, right, of just, you know, where they keep all these cut out yearbook photos of people they don't like and they write all sorts of mean things about them. Um, what happens is Katie joins the group, later becomes herself the queen bee, replacing Regina, right? And she becomes a sort of spiteful and superficial teenage Ferris on campus, right? Her high school life turns into something that has nothing to do with high school. Um, nothing to do with the actual, you know, K-12 education system, right? Uh, she becomes obsessed with the plastics, their popularity, the materialism, right, who they friend and unfriend and all that stuff, right? That's all she knows. Even though that's all made up, that's all she knows. She's basically bought into this false idea that this is what high school life is all about. And at one point, she even, like, intentionally fails her tests so that she can, like, be together with this boyfriend who's suitable for the queen bee, right? Uh, her priorities are totally shifted. Her worldview is totally shifted. This is what high school is all about in her, in her point of view. Now, there's a parallel there to what the Pharisees had done with the law of God. Uh, they've turned it into something that it's not. Okay. They've turned it into this made-up standard for religious righteousness, acceptability, validity, legitimacy. And in doing so, they're just promoting themselves while demoting others. So the Pharisees, in other words, right, they're the archetypal mean girls, okay? The, the spiritual plastics of their day, okay? Um, and the number one person on their burn book, Jesus. It's Jesus, okay? It was their way of saying, Jesus is not serious about the law. Just look at his disciples. They're not even fasting twice a week or even once a week. He can't be a serious teacher of the law. He can't be really understanding the true meaning of the law. Right? And then they, they, it looks like they were dragging John the Baptist's disciples into this as well, since John's been arrested and all that. And then maybe John's disciples did kind of go along, right? just kind of go along to get along. But look who's not, right? Coming under the Pharisees' influence, but coming out of it. Right? It's Jesus' disciples. Those who have been called by Christ, right? Their approach to fasting is different. Their approach to repentance is different. And the Pharisees take issue with that, and they say, you know, why, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? What is up with your disciples, Jesus? Why aren't they like us? Why are they different from us? And I just want to pause, right, pause that scene right there and point out something very important that's happening right here. And it's very important for us to understand. Uh, understanding this, the difference between the Pharisees and Jesus' disciples, that distinction. That distinction is so critical for us to understand today. We have to understand, as true followers of Christ, how we are not religious plastics. How we are not like that. Okay? Uh, we, you need to be able to articulate that to some extent. Are we sure we're not misinterpreting the law like the Pharisees and turning into a point-based merit system by which we elevate ourselves above others? Um, we have to be able to distinguish ourselves from that. And if we find ourselves in a place where we're not sure how to answer that, like, I, I'm actually not sure how to distinguish myself from that, 
I think what Mark is doing then is he's kind of sounding this very much needed alarm, right? To examine ourselves because we, we really do need to be clear about this. That our Christian life is a response not to the calling of some made-up Christian point-based merit system to join the plastics, but a response to the calling of Christ and His call alone. Not a call to impress God with excessive fasting. Excellent repenting. That's what I, I, I have to watch Batman Lego like once a week with my six-year-old. And there's a scene where Batman says to Robin, Excellent obeying, right? That's kind of sometimes what we think maybe we need to hear from God. Just excellent repenting, excellent fasting. But that's not his call. It's a call actually to abandon all forms of self-reliance and come with God with a sense of emptiness and deprivation, which this thing about fasting was meant to produce in us. To come hungry for the merit, the approval, the acceptance that comes from God himself. Not ourselves, but God himself. That was the point of fasting on the Day of Atonement. It was to give up on this kind of striving that assumes that you can save yourself by yourself for yourself. Repentance was always about surrendering that. And therefore, it's not just throwing out the bad behavior, but also the good behavior that we rely on, thinking that's what's going to save me. You have to throw out the good as much as the bad. You've got you to gotta Marie Kondo that religiosity. The good, moral, religious things that we do to save ourselves. Now, Jesus is not saying, you know, don't bother obeying the law. He's not saying fasting is bad. What he's saying is we have to get rid of this idea, this Pharisaic notion, that fasting and keeping the law and upping the law, really going varsity level with the law, is what gets us into the kingdom. That our religious excellence is what wins us God's approval. That's what he's calling us to lay down. That kind of self-reliance. And, and that is repentance. And that's the, the really big point, and, and, and I want to just briefly show you how this leads us kind of naturally to the other two points, the rejoicing and the renewal. See, when you're ready to lay down your, even your goodness, that is when we're really ready to say, yeah, I'm, I'm rejoicing in Christ. And I want to be renewed by him. So here, look at how Jesus calls his disciples to rejoice. Jesus, here's the point. Jesus is calling his disciples to rejoice in this. The love of the bridegroom. The love of the bridegroom. Right? Listen to what he says in verses 19 and 20. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. What Jesus is claiming here about himself would have been shocking to the people um, during this time. Because they would have known that he is identifying himself as the bridegroom of Israel. That was prophesied about in the Old Testament. All over the all throughout the Old Testament. God has identified himself all throughout the scriptures. And the coming Messiah as the bridegroom of Israel. From Isaiah to Hosea to Ezekiel to Jeremiah, God says, I'm the bridegroom who's going to come and redeem my people with the joy of a bridegroom. This was how God wanted his people to, to identify him as their bridegroom, who's going to come and redeem them and unite them to himself. And Jesus, by identifying himself as a bridegroom of the wedding, 
He's effectively saying, I am the Lord. I am your maker. I am the Holy One of Israel. I am. Not only that, Jesus identifies his disciples as the wedding guests. And because they are wedding guests, he says, they cannot fast. They cannot mourn or grieve or feel deprived when they're at a wedding. They must celebrate, they must rejoice, because a wedding is where the guests come to join in on the joy of the one being married, right? Like if you're invited to a wedding, you have one job. It's not be sad, right? That's your one, and other than dressing appropriately, right? Your job is to rejoice, to party it up, get on the dance floor, right? Represent the bridegroom and the bride, right? And that's, of course, not just for yourself to have a good time. It's ultimately not about you. It's about the joy of the bridegroom and the bride who's, come to get, who's coming together, uniting themselves to one another. You're joining in on their joy. So, so Jesus is basically calling his disciples to celebrate two things here. One, that God has kept his promise and has come to redeem his people. This is no longer a long-distance relationship. He's here. And secondly, you're in on it. You're invited. You're invited to come to this wedding and celebrate with this bridegroom. And back then, they, their wedding was like a week-long thing. And, and Jesus is like, how can you be fasting twice a week when you're invited to God's wedding? What a way to miss the good news. What a way to miss the, the gospel. To be mourning when you're supposed to be rejoicing. You're invited to celebrate God's marriage to his people. Rejoice. It's not a time to fast or feel empty, but a time to be filled, filled with his rejoicing. So you see, the way Jesus brings his disciples to repentance is not by calling them to perform or outperform, but to rejoice. Rejoice with Him. Okay, his agenda is not to get us working, but to spark our truest, innermost joy. He's here to spark our joy. And this is the kind of joy that will lead us to willingly, gladly, throw out everything else, good and the bad. Throw out our failures as well as our successes to rejoice in His in his doing, his performing, his success, and even his, his being deprived and him being emptied for us. And that's exactly what he did for us on the cross. He, he was fasting from his glory, deprived of his glory on the cross. And so the cross, when you picture the cross, right, you can't possibly imagine that the message of the cross is, go do more for me. It can't possibly mean that. It's, it's saying the exact opposite, right? It's done. It's finished. So when Jesus calls someone to himself, he's, when he's calling a disciple to follow him, he's calling them to rejoice, to rejoice. This love that made Jesus willingly carry the cross for his bride, rejoice in that love. And driven by that joy, lay everything else down. Cast everything away 
Hebrews 12.2 says, Jesus did it all. For the joy, he suffered even the cross, for the joy that was set before him. He did it for the joy. And what was that joy? What was the object of that joy? It's his bride. It's you. It's me. That's the good news. That's the, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe this, this good news that caused you to rejoice? And not the, not the alternative thing, whatever you call that, that says you've got to outperform everyone else, and that's how you get into the kingdom of God. If you believe this good news, I think it will change you, it will renew you, and this is going to lead to the last point. This gospel, you will find that this gospel has the power to renew you every single day. To the degree that you press into this gospel, that's the degree to which you will be renewed from one degree to the next. You will change. You will change. The change doesn't come first. Right? It's not the thing God prioritizes, but it is the outcome of what he gives you, the joy that he gives you. It's a part of it. It's part of the gospel. Right? I'm not here to say like you don't have to obey, you don't have to change. I'm just saying that's the fruit of it and not the root of it. Now, to make this point, let me just sum up the closing metaphors in this passage very briefly um, for the sake of time. Um, the metaphors about the old patch on the new cloth and the old wine in the new wineskin. Here's what Jesus is saying. It's, it's, a, it's actually a massive point. It could be like a different, like entirely different sermon, but you have to go back to study for your midterms. So here's, the, here's the thing. Here's, here's the massive point put very simply. You cannot, you cannot fit Jesus into your old way of life. That's what this means. You cannot box Jesus into your pre-existing priorities and agendas. He won't fit. It, it'll be like running a, and this is where I sound really Asian, like an Android app on an iPhone, right? It's just not gonna work. Um, you need an entirely different software or hardware, right? Shout out to Samsung. Um, or, or it'll be like Marie Kondo, right, coming into your house and just sitting there without making a single change to your life. That's not possible. If Con Marie's in your door, Things are about to change, right? Jesus and our pre-existing agendas are two entirely different operating systems. They lead us in different directions, and that at some point has to be evident in your life. Something I do with our church members is give them this, this thing called pre-engagement counseling. And when couples are dating and I just show them these question, essential questions they should be asking, other than what's your favorite Netflix or right? other than that, like some essential questions, right, they should be asking. And one of the questions is direction. And, and so, you know, if you're, if you're heading the same direction, then you maybe have a green light to keep going and keep asking other questions. But if your directions are heading right in different directions, that's a yellow light. Right? You've got to talk that through. I'm not saying, like, it's a red light. I'm just saying it's a yellow light. You can talk this through. So, for example, if the guy's like, I want five kids. And the girl's like, oh, I kind of want it zero. <laughs> okay, so the, before your next date out to, you know, movie, grabbing a bite, that's maybe something you should talk about because you're kind of heading this way, right? So if I were to, let's say, sit you down with Jesus and do a pre-engagement counseling session, and we're talking about direction here and priorities, will it be this 
Or will you get the green light just to keep going? At some point, you got to check that. And it's not enough just to be like, Jesus, let me take you out on a movie on Sunday, go to church with you on Sunday, and give you a little offering here and there, right? Are you headed in the same direction? Are you changing your direction? Is he changing your direction? Is this the same operating system? Right? You get the idea. And this is why Jesus, when he calls a disciple, he's not just calling them to change their hearts, but through a changed heart, change their behavior as well. His presence in our lives won't just cause us to rejoice, it will renew. It will renew us. Practically, this means we won't simultaneously be drawing our self-worth from our performance, our grades, our professor's opinions, and ask Jesus to be the source of our self-worth as well. We can't take this self-made identity coming out of this sort of college point-based merit system and patch that onto our Christian identity. It also means we can't carry the old wine of people-pleasing, people-fearing, perfectionism, workaholism, while simultaneously carrying this new wine of Christ in us, His grace, His kindness, His mercy, His work, His perfection being our satisfaction. The old heart won't be able to sustain the new life that Christ wants us to have. They're not compatible. And I know, like speaking as a, like as an Asian American who, who, who had gone through the UC system, the, the University of California system, I know that's really easier said than done, right? Like the pressure, I get it. Like pressure is tremendous. Expectations are through the roof. And, and you, you probably think this kind of renewal where you find all of your identity and your joy in Christ is impossible, Right? But I'm here to tell you, yeah, with you and me, it's impossible. But with the gospel, it is. It's possible. If we press into this gospel repentance and gospel rejoicing, then the gospel renewal is possible. And, and know this too. Um, Jesus is, is not demanding sudden perfection from you, and, and like this overnight sort of one episode makeover. He's not demanding that from you. That's not even what happened to the 12 disciples. Some of the men who wrote the Bible, they didn't change overnight. But here's a question that you have to ask yourself and be honest about it, and that is, are you heading in the right direction? Again, are you, are you heading in the same direction as, as Jesus? Are you, are you gradually being renewed? Is there a certain change in the way you understand yourself worth as you dig deeper into this gospel. Something I tell my church folks all the time is change and renewal in the Christian life may not be sudden, but it's got to be certain. And it may be gradual, but it's got to be actual too. It's not sudden, but certain. Gradual, yes, but also actual. So you can't just be sitting there all day saying, you know, well, it's not going to happen suddenly. It's happening gradually and then never have any certain change to show for or never show any actual fruit. It's both. It's, it's not sudden, yes, but it's got to be certain. And the way we experience this certain actual change in our lives 
is by continually hearing and responding to this call of Christ to repent and to rejoice. Repent and rejoice. Repent and rejoice. Repent and rejoice. Breathe in and breathe out. That's our rhythm. That's discipleship 101. And, and we need the church, we need RUF, we need brothers and sisters in Christ to accompany us on this journey and remind us of that. that it's, it's going back to the basics. Heeding the call of Christ to repent and rejoice in Him. Will this process of renewal be painless? No. The good news is not that this process will be painless. The good news is that this renewal has been accomplished and applied to us in a way that no pain can ever undo. Nothing can undo what God is setting out to do in your life. So it's worth staying in the fight in spite of the pain. That's the good news. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. You've probably heard this if, if you're a Lewis fan. Uh, if, you, if you think of your life as a house, and you know, when you look at God, what He's doing in your life, you realize He's not just taking out the drains and stopping the leaks and the little maintenance stuff here and there. He's knocking the whole house down. Why? It doesn't make any sense. What, what's He up to? The explanation is, quote, that He is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but He's building a palace. It's because he intends to come and live in it himself. I love how Lewis here makes Jesus sound like the, the OG Murray Kondo. Doesn't he? Right? Only more so, right? Because this is God Almighty. The great I am. <coughs> Meaning you can trust him. You can trust him. You can trust Him even when it doesn't make any sense, even when it hurts, even when your circumstances are desperate, falling apart. Because God isn't ultimately out to renew your circumstances. He's out to renew you for the whole new kingdom, whole new set of circumstances that Jesus is bringing down to earth soon. That's what we keep in mind, that's what we fall back on, and stay focused on His calling. Every day we hear His calling to repent and to rejoice and to be renewed by His husband-like love for you. Let's pray. God, I, uh, I thank you for these brothers and sisters in Christ. I thank you for their faithfulness. I thank you for their diligence um, to their calling here. And I pray that you would infuse into their hearts the comfort and the joy that you want them to experience through this gospel. And that they would head into the direction of repenting and rejoicing and being renewed. Even now, even here, even during midterms. Meet them, Lord, with the power of your gospel, I pray.